Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind on this chilly Friday in at least metro Atlanta. Um, It's a great day to celebrate the Atlanta Braves World Series victory with the parades that are going to take place in downtown Atlanta as well as up in Cobb County later today. If you're among the thousands out there, please dress warmly. If you haven't been outside yet, it's very, very cold out there. Um, before I introduce the panel today, I want to I make a correction to something that I said yesterday uh, that just proves how often I get things wrong. Um, we were talking about the uh, uh, news of the jury in the trial of the three men accused of murdering Ahmaud Arbery and had a really good conversation about the fact that only one black person was chosen on that jury. In the middle of that conversation, I said that I had read an article in which the judge had said that um, he believed that the jury was a reflection of the demographics of the region. Well, there were two things wrong with that statement. Number one, the judge did not say that. There are three things wrong. Number one, the judge did not make that statement. Uh, Number two, having one out of 12 uh, on the jury being black is not an accurate reflection of the demographics of the region. Um, and, and so the problem became what really happened was that Lee Merritt, who is the attorney for the Arbery family, gave a statement to the AJC in which he said that the jury panel, that larger group that was uh, uh, impaneled to be selected from, reflected the region, but the final jury did not. And a number of you called me on that, and I'm glad you did, and I apologize Uh, Because in the middle of a really important conversation, that was just uh, the wrong note to inject. So thank you all for keeping me as honest as possible on this show. That said, let's introduce uh, the panel. Uh, Patricia Murphy is here. It's Friday. She, of course, is the political reporter and columnist. She writes the Political Insider column for the AJC. You read her on Wednesdays and Sundays in the paper. And she oversees the jolt which you can read every day at AJC.com. Patricia, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. And Bill, my readers keep me honest, too. So don't worry. It's all to the better. (laughs) I think that's absolutely right. I am always glad when people call me out, and I never mind correcting it because uh, I think it's important to do that. But thank you for being here today. Maria Supporta is with us. Um, she, of course, is the editor of the Supporta Report, which um, is a really good place to read news about the metro Atlanta region and lar- and the policy issues that we're dealing with. Maria Supporta has, uh, is a native of Atlanta, has covered business and uh, policy in Atlanta for decades, and it's a pleasure to have you back on the show today, Maria. Thanks for being here. Thank you, and my readers also keep me honest, which, as you said, is a wonderful thing because, you know, we say uh, we want to get it first, but first we want to get it right. We can get it yeah, right, right, we want exactly. to the CEO of DeKalb County is with us today as well, Michael Thurman, who has been a long-time elected official and leader in the state of Georgia, dating back to his days when he was a <laughs> freshman state representative from his hometown of Athens, Georgia. How are you, Michael? I'm great. Good morning, Bill. And Bill Nugget discovered me on a back bench. <laughs> You did not stay on the back bench for long, CEO Thurman. (laughs) Thanks for being here, Mike. Yes. All right, Bill. We're also joined by Republican consultant uh, Leo Smith, who is also the president of Engage Strategies, Engage Futures. I'm sorry, Leo, uh, the company that he founded. Uh, which does government affairs work and looks at building coalitions around public policy issues like education. Leo, how are you today? Doing great. It's a great time to uh, be involved in making democracy great again, you know. So thank you, Bill, for having me. 
Absolutely. You know, okay, so uh, Patricia, today's one of those days when we could start with one of like four or five different stories. So we're just going to pick one kind of at random, and we're going to pick it, pick one that has to do with uh, basically the city of Atlanta in a couple of different ways. Number one, Patricia, yesterday Kasim Reed conceded that he is not going to be uh, the next mayor of Atlanta. He will not return. He came in third. Uh, and uh, so the runoff is now set, and uh, we're going to watch how that plays out. But before we talk about the runoff, first of all, start off by telling us what the heck, you know, Kasim Reed came back feeling very, very, uh, he was a sort of swaggery in terms of his uh, attitude about saying, I'm back, I'm here, I'm going to raise a lot of money. I'm gonna... What happened, Patricia? So Kasim uh, Reed, as you said, came in with just a huge splash, a ton of momentum. I think it was a, a surprise to us and to voters that he was getting back into the scene. Um, and he had very high name ID. Um, however, uh, it took just a little bit of polling to see he had very high negatives of the Atlanta voters who remembered him. A lot of them just didn't like him. And um, I think that he tried to really recast himself as a man who uh, was a changed man, was more thoughtful and more mature, and would uh, conduct himself um, a little bit differently and more personably. Um, however, I think that just didn't sway many voters. And I also think that just the fact that so many of his former staff members have had very significant legal trouble. A number of his former staff are indicted. Uh, some are heading to jail. Um, he has never been charged with a crime. He, his lawyer said he's not under federal investigation. But when that's your closing message is, I'm not under federal investigation, it's not going in the right direction for you. And Kasimri just couldn't shake that. And his opponents hammered him with that publicly and a little bit under the radar as well, even directly to some voters' cell phones. So it, it really was uh, too much for him to overcome. Maria? Yeah, well, first of all, I have to say I was pleasantly surprised that he conceded. A lot of people were really concerned that he was going to drag it out and do a stop the steal kind of campaign. And I think there was a early attempt to try and do that. And fortunately, um, the better angels got a hold of him and he graciously conceded and wished uh, both Felicia Moore and Andre Dickens well. So I think that that was a, a really positive move. But, you know, the more Kasim put himself on the air, the more people were reminded why they didn't like him. And I think that that continued to haunt him. There also was a, a very strong underground social media movement and anybody but Kasim movement that, you know, my, my cell phone was getting inundated with texts and with videos, um, as were many others. And it really kind of went under the radar, but I think it definitely had an impact, especially when a woman from, from a People's Town came and there was a really powerful video where she accused um, Kasim of lying about whether she would be evicted from her house. So it, it, yeah. it, it, it's kind of a, you know, it was people remember um, what you say and what you do and who you are. And I think that that hurt Kasim in the long run. So, Michael, a couple things that I'd like to ask you about, really. One of them, you sent me a text yesterday uh, when the results were clear in which you said it was DeKalb County, which uh, made, made clear that, that it would be Andre Dickens and Felicia Moore uh, who would be in the runoff. Talk about that. Well, voting from Atlanta Fulton had Kasim Reed in second place. And it was the vote that were cast in Atlanta uh, DeKalb that powered Andre, um, Mr. Dickens, into the runoff. And it was something we picked up on about three weeks out. Um, Andre Dickens uh, was generating a significant amount of uh, energy and momentum. Uh, he was campaigning heavily in Atlanta DeKalb. I know I was at at least two events where he was there. And I said privately uh, to individuals that I felt that uh, Andre Dickens would probably slip past uh, the former mayor uh, into second place, and no surprise there. But but this race really, Bill, was a, a referendum on Kasim Reed. Uh, he ran almost as an incumbent, 
And um, obviously there was a lot of uh, baggage he had to overcome. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, he was just, it was just too much. It was too much. It was a race about Kasim. And so now that Kasim Reed is out of the race, uh, I think you have a totally different political landscape that you will now have to uh, engage and the candidates will have to traverse. But I will say this, the uh, concession uh, note, a uh, letter uh, that he authored yesterday was outstanding. And uh, Maria mentioned that, that uh, she was surprised. But Cassine uh, Reed is a larger-than-life figure, love him or hate him. If you look at the reporting, uh, most of the reporting was about Cassine Reed. Uh, in the local media. And, um, you know, hope springs eternal. Uh, the Braves came back, and hopefully uh, he'll see this as an opportunity to uh, not necessarily get back into politics, uh, but to take this as a, a learning, uh, educational moment. And uh, he has a beautiful young daughter uh, and use this opportunity to continue to make positive contributions in our community. So, Michael, and then I want to bring... Elected, you know, go ahead, Bill. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I apologize. I apologize for cutting you up. Let me, but, but I want to ask you a couple questions, really, and then, Leo, I'd love for you to weigh in on these, too. Number one, Michael, I always want to make sure, because we have so many listeners who are in places like Augusta and Savannah and Columbus, you know, uh, outlying uh, areas of Georgia. So when we talk about the Atlanta mayor's race, I always think it's important to say there are reasons to understand how important the mayor's race of Atlanta is to the rest of the state of Georgia. And, and then the, the corollary to that is, and what does this, the two kind of newer people on the scene in terms of mayoral politics, Dickens and Felicia Moore, although they're both been uh, part of the Atlanta City Council. What does it mean about how Atlanta is changing? So you start with that, and then I'll ask Leo about that, too. Well, first of all, you know, I have personal relationships. I know uh, Felicia Moore and Andre Dickens, and uh, both of them are very talented uh, individuals who've had a significant amount of public service, and they represent the next generation of leadership, uh, Democratic Party leadership in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, being mayor of Atlanta, is the preeminent political position uh, in this state absent the governorship. And, of course, uh, it's the capital city of Georgia, uh, but it has national and international cachet. And so I see it as a changing of the gods. Alicia Moore uh, comes from a very different perspective than, say, the previous mayors who served. And uh, she built a citywide coalition, if you look at her uh, both total, uh, she did well throughout the city, north, south, east, and west. And uh, But Andre Dickens uh, actually obviously is a bright young man, and you see him with the support of uh, former Mayor Shirley Franklin uh, powering to the runoff. It's going to be interesting. And I've been in these runoffs before, and I know you can assume the percentages and say, but, you know, all bets are off in a runoff like this in a year unlike any other political year we've had in quite a while. Leo? You know, there's that old saying that a day in politics is like a thousand, and that can benefit a candidate and it can hurt a candidate. Kasim, uh, because of being sidelined by the scandals and the investigations, um, he was basically in hiding by uh, many accounts for a long time. And of course, we saw the rise of uh, Ossoff and Warnock during that time. The climate changed, uh, the demographic shifts in Atlanta, um, you know, in southwest Atlanta, et cetera, um, has gotten a little bit more gentrified. The, the politics are changing. The black elite in Atlanta um, are less, um, you know, loyal to Atlanta natives, people who grew up here, that sort of thing. It, it, there's much less of a click around politics that I'm observing from the mm -hmm. suburbs here. I keep up with urban politics to the supporter report. <laughs> you know, but uh, <laughs> you know, the other thing here that, that, that uh, I want to make sure that folks don't underestimate is what I think CEO Thurman mentioned. Felicia Moore has been doing a lot of coalition building for quite a long time. Um, I don't play in urban politics as much as I do, obviously, in Republican and suburban politics. But yet I met her in 2015 in Roswell at a GOP meeting. And that says a lot about who 
the Mary Norwood coalition, for instance, that she's in, that, that they've embraced her, and she's done a very good job of building that coalition almost in stealth mode. Um, go ahead. Go ahead, yeah. Maria. I was going to say, uh, Felicia Moore is on the uh, board of the Atlanta Regional Commission, and she attends mm -hmm. regularly. Uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms never attended one ARC meeting, and she has not even been sworn in as a member. And that is a great regional platform for Atlanta. And whether we like it or not, the city of Atlanta does carry a great responsibility for the region and statewide because it is a signature city. So yeah, that bodes yeah, well for I'm the future of regionalism. Yeah, thank you for mentioning all that. Um, Patricia, it's interesting that yesterday two events that, that actually have a lot to do with each other uh, came together. Uh, not only did we f was the runoff between uh, Dickens and uh, Moore fixed, uh, but as, as the election moves forward to a November 30th runoff for mayor of Atlanta, the state Senate held its first official hearing on the city of Buckhead question. And what, what I wanted to ask you about in terms of this, Patricia, is we know that crime in Atlanta has been the key issue uh, in, in all of the mayor uh, races, uh, can candidacies up until this point, and will continue to be significant. Um, and, of course, it is crime that is driving people uh, to want to promote this notion of an independent city of Buckhead. Um, so, with that in mind, Patricia, it strikes me that both Dickens and Moore are going to have to make the case that they are the strongest person to be able to go to the state capitol and lobby against this notion of an independent city. That's going to become a huge part of how they will run their campaigns, I would think. I think that's absolutely right. Every candidate for mayor um, said that they were against Buckhead seceding, of course, uh, because any mayor would want to keep their um, keep their city together. Um, but in the backdrop, um, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has been very quiet on the issue. And so I think that whoever um, wins this race, it will be their immediate top priority to lobby the legislature and lobby Atlantans and lobby people in Buckhead specifically about why that is not a good idea, in their opinion, not good for the city and not good for Buckhead. Um, so uh, in order to get to that point over the next three weeks, literally while the legislature is in session, um, it's going to be these simultaneous movements of Republicans in the state legislature trying to inch this ball forward to allow Buckhead voters to vote to secede from Atlanta. And then also Atlantans choosing the next mayor who will be pivotal to that question of whether or not it would happen. And to your point, that would really start with getting into the legislature. It's going to be an inside and an outside game. The inside game is going to be with Speaker Ralston and with the leaders of the state House and Senate and with the governor, because he would have to sign that bill. The outside game is going to be with voters. And so whoever is the next mayor is going to have to prove in the next three weeks that they've got the capacity to do that most effectively. Yeah, Leo, I, in, in a number of debates in the mayor's race, I heard the question asked a few times, um, how will you, if you're elected mayor, work with the city council? Because there's obviously been tension in those relationships for a very long time. But I think in some way, and that's an important question, but perhaps an even greater question is, how will you, if you're the next mayor of Atlanta, number one, work with the last year of a Brian Kemp uh, a governorship before he uh, stands for re-election, and how will you form your relationship with, as Patricia points out, leaders in the legislature like uh, Speaker Ralston? And, and I think both Dickens and Moore are going to have to address that very, very clearly uh, as the city of Buckhead issue moves forward. Indeed. I, you know, I think as one of the glimmering glimmers of hope that Kasim had was this reputation of being able to work across partisanship, having a workable relationship with uh, Governor Deal, having, um, as Maria just said, uh, involvement in the regional aspect, the statewide economic impact of, of Georgia. Felicia, because of her participation, um, obviously it seems to be that's an advantage for her. On the Buckhead Cityhood piece, uh, I think that she has been one of the few candidates that has actually spoken 
about the competition of ideas that's necessary to address the crime issue. She seems to have a little bit more uh, ability to speak clearly about changes and um, police pay and things like that, that, you know, I think her experience really gives her an advantage there to speak on those issues. And that's critical. So what comes out of this Buckhead City movement is more uh, new ideas on how to work on crime issues, how to deal with uh, tax issues. Um, and I think Felicia, having been a leader for quite a long time now, uh, is in a very good position to speak on those issues. Michael, um, weigh in on this Buckhead City movement. It's, you know, it's being promoted, of course, by a guy who's only lived in, in the city of Atlanta for several years, moved here, uh, Bill White. And, and the, the legislators are behind it. We, we all know none of them. Uh, live in the city of Atlanta. Brandon Beach is, uh, you know, kind of uh, been the most uh, popular face of that movement, uh, and he's Alpharetta. So, w- what's happening? What? Are, what is? Why are people like a Brandon Beach working to create a free city of Buckhead? Well, what you just stated speaks volumes, and you know, <laughs> I wonder what uh, where my friend Brandon Beach went. I, I don't know this guy. Uh, you know, and we laugh and we talk, but the new Brandon Beach and the fact that the impetus for the city of uh, Buckhead is being, it's an external movement, not necessarily an internal one, speaks volumes. Uh, these individuals that are promoting it, uh, my friend Otis said, are not necessarily people who live in Buckhead. So you have to wonder what the agenda is. Uh, you know, we've gone through this in DeKalb. I understand the municipalization movement. And one of the things you have to do, the response to uh, the cityhood movement, is you have to uh, create a more effective and efficient government. And in the case of DeKalb, we had to just do a better job uh, in the county of dealing with the blocking and tackling of running a government day to day. It's not glamorous, uh, but you got to pick up the sanitation. You know, once a week, the trucks have to roll. And the basic fundamental things, including uh, helping create a safer community. Those things, that's the best response to a cityhood movement is you have to moderate or even eliminate the rationale for wanting to break out. And you have to to clearly uh, expose or at least share, help make sure the public can see who is actually behind it. Uh, I see people like uh, Sam Olin, Ed Lindsay, some uh, Ed Lindsay in particular, uh, some people who actually live in Buckhead who are Republicans, who are adamantly opposed to the city of Buckhead. That's what really gets my attention. Uh, People who have respected long, long careers in government who are adamantly opposed to it. Uh, Mr. Durrett, Jim Durrett, uh, who leads the, uh, I guess, the uh, Buckhead Coalition, who serves on the monitor board, he's opposed to it. So when Jim Durrett and Ed Lindsay says no, you get my attention. (laughs) <laughs> Maria? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, Brandon Beach was actually on the uh, annual link trip to Chicago last week, and he was kind of lonely. Uh, this was a lot of regional leaders. He's gone on this trip repeatedly and been very popular uh, among the regional crowd because of having a fairly progressive view towards transit. I mean, he was served on the Georgia Board of uh, Transportation He's he always had been on a um, bridge uh, bridge builder capacity. I think Patricia will have to share her insights about what role national politics and former President Trump may have had on on Brandon Beach's turnaround. But the last point I'd want to make is, interestingly enough, um, Felicia's major strength in the election came from the north side uh, parts of Atlanta, from Buckhead. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how that plays out. I think it's wonderful because Andre Dickens is also a very collaborative kind of leader, someone who uh, is approachable. You don't get the feeling that um, you're talking to a king when you talk to him. And the same with Felicia. So it is a new day, and I think uh, the conversation with Buckhead uh, will is really just beginning uh, with these two uh, runoff candidates. Uh, all right, Patricia, obviously over the next couple of weeks, you're going to be following uh, the legislature, the Buckhead cityhood uh, 
movement and how it moves forward in this special session, how they try to build energy around that. But I think we're going to see, as Michael Thurman basically pointed out, the opposition is going to start uh, making itself felt in a much bigger way at this point as well. Uh, so we'll watch that. Uh, but before we take a break, let me turn to one other issue that we're, we'll, we'll only talk about for a, a couple of minutes today because we'll have all next week to talk about it in more detail. And that's the real major reason why they're in session right now, which is to draw new maps, political maps of the state of Georgia. I think there are some people who are a little bit surprised that the state Senate yesterday in committee voted out a map um, with only uh, one public hearing that lasted a couple of hours, and uh, they're prepared to bring it to the floor. Democrats are really upset that there's not going to be a more deliberative process. What's going on there? Well, so the both the state House and the state Senate held these um, public hearings throughout uh, the time when they were not in session over the summer. I think there were maybe nine or ten public hearings. I think that their uh, their point is, well, we've had all of these hearings. We have had all of this public input. The reality, the reality is that debating these maps is not going to make a bit of difference, I don't think. I think this is a leadership-driven process. Um, and uh, then it will be a legal process, probably. And um, the Democrats certainly have uh, raised very vocal opposition um, to moving this process quickly. Um, I'm skeptical that any Democratic input would change anything. You know, this is all about right. Republican priorities and making sure that it's legal. And that's about it. It's not about what the Democrats want. See, but Leo, before we take a break, here, here's the question I would ask about that. Uh, of course, they had these hearings around the state, but that, they had no maps at that point. We now have had a Senate map introduced with only a couple of days for people to look it over and before apparently Republicans are going to bring it to a vote in the whole Senate. Now, I, everything Patricia said seems right. Republicans will control how the maps are drawn. But public perception matters in all of this uh, Leo. And and the notion that there may be some feeling out there, the Democrats will take advantage of the, the haste to do this to say that Republicans are manipulating the process uh, could have some impact moving forward in, in the elections of 2022. Sure. Public per perception matters a lot. And I think the perception that the Democrats are going to be, uh, uh, that's going to be placed on the Democrats is that they're like Washington Democrats. They just want the infrastructure bill to go on and on and on and on without any leadership and governance action. Um, the personal blame of uh, whether or not you take decisive leadership on something lies at the committee base with, with, with Democrats themselves. And so Republicans can easily say Democrats are doing what Washington Democrats do, and that's, you know, uh, want to have a lot of debate and, and, and without any actual governing. Uh, Mike so Thurman, weigh in on that very quickly. <laughs> All politics is local. My last session in the General Assembly, I was chair of the Legislative Black Caucus, was a reapportionment session in 1991. It was the beginning of the end of democratic control. When politicians and political parties seek to uh, circumvent public input and, uh, and, and, and mod or at least dilute debate, they are playing with fire. And with reapportionment, always look for the law of unintended consequences. These maps suggest one thing, but voters ultimately determine who serves in the House and the Senate in, in our state. All right. We give Michael Thurman the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. we got to get to a break, but when we come back, there's so much more to talk about with this terrific panel. You're listening to Political Rewind. Today on Political Rewind, Maria Sporta, the editor of Supporter Report, which you can get online, by the way, if you want to take a look at it over there. It's really worth your while. Um, Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County, back with us. Leo Smith, Republican consultant and AJC political reporter and columnist Patricia Murphy, who, as you all know, we get to see each other on WebEx, is not only 
uh, giving us smart analysis. She's also talking to her children who are home from school and are off camera right now. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm telling them, shh, everybody be quiet. <laughs> All right. Hey, Patricia, let's, let's start this segment uh, talking about uh, some of the consequences of the uh, elections on Tuesday in, in Virginia, particularly New Jersey, where it was a much closer gubernatorial race than most people anticipated, and a few other races where Republicans really scored big. Uh, uh, two things that we know have happened as a result of that f- in terms of impact on Georgia is that Larry Sabato has now moved, the crystal ball has now moved the Raphael Warnock Senate race from leans Democratic to a toss-up, which is significant. Um, and second, the NRCC, the National Republican Campaign Committee, has decided they're going to target Sanford Bishop, who's been in, a, you know, the Democrat in that Southwest Georgia Congressional District, District 2, for going on three decades. Uh, it's unlikely the maps are going to do much harm to him, but if NRCC pours resources into a race down there, it's going to mean they're going to have to find a candidate, it strikes me. That's exactly right. But by putting that second district into a position where they are publicly telegraphing it as competitive and as a place where Republicans will put resources, that's a big recruiting tool. That tells anybody with aspirations in that future second district, not the current one, but the future one, we are ready to help you if you're ready to get into this race. And I've heard Jim Galloway say, very wisely. Um, this may not be a redistricting that's about Sanford Bishop, but it's about who might come after Sanford Bishop. Um, he is so uh, well-respected there right now. Um, he's the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, which is everything to that rural district. Um, but who comes after Sanford Bishop is the question, I think. So I think that's what that was all about. Um, and then in terms of what we saw on Tuesday, there were a number of local races here in Georgia in the, sub- in the suburbs of Atlanta where Republicans did very, very well. And so it's not just about Virginia and New Jersey. I think we're looking at a headwind for Democrats uh, while they were enjoying a heavy tailwind last November. And I, so we're seeing that here in Georgia as well. Yeah, that's that's really a good point. Uh, so, for instance, Rusty Paul, former a chairman of the state Republican Party, uh, Michael, won re-election with an overwhelming majority. I think he got a 70 per of the vote against uh, people who were perceived to be Democratic. Um, You know, those are nonpartisan races. Same in uh, Marietta, uh, where the Republican-leaning mayor was reelected. So, uh, Michael, Patricia makes a good point. We should be looking at the local races, too. Well, and include Tucker, where I live, uh, Frank Allman. Yes. uh, Yes, Who was the former GOP chair, actually defeated, uh, who presumptively was a Democrat, who was a Democratic challenger. But it's a part of the pendulum. And, you know, the pendulum swings. Uh, Democrats have done extremely well in 2018 and 2020. Uh, what we did see, I think, it, that I think is most uh, compelling is that moderate uh, Republican, Democrat, independent voters uh, shifted uh, their allegiance in this last election. And I believe, um, hopefully, Democrats will recognize this. The landscape is constantly shifting and changing. Uh, And so we have to, as a party, uh, and particularly as candidates, recognize that when the landscape shifts, uh, we have to make sure that we recruit uh, candidates who can uh, at least uh, present themselves in a way that might be appealing to the shift in terrain uh, as it exists. Uh, The the difference in Virginia and Georgia, uh, the Republicans have had a tough time recruiting good, solid candidates. And also, uh, we don't want to read too much in Virginia because you have to survive a very contentious uh, Republican primary in order to get to a general election. And often with Republican primary, uh, you have to tack hard right in order to survive. And it's going to be very difficult to get back to a moderate position uh, similar to one that Yunkin uh, uh, successfully uh, uh, maneuvered in Virginia. Yeah, let me let me ask you about that, Leo, and then Maria, you uh, should weigh in on all this. It, 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 Michael makes an important point. Yankin was able to keep Donald Trump at a distance. Um, he, he used him for he used him to his advantage on on conservative uh, media outlets, and then 
uh, uh, treated him much differently when he talked to mainstream Virginians. You, you, Republican candidates in the primaries can't do that here in Georgia. Not They're already tied to him at the waist. Yeah, it's the difference, and I think that's extremely important. I think the CEO has pointed out something that a lot of people are overlooking. Um, while we can get excited as Republicans about what the Yunkin uh, race uh, sort of predicts for us, I think we should get more excited about New Jersey. But what the Virginia race was different in that there was a convention as opposed to an open primary that we would normally see in a, in a, in a, in a, in a GOP process. And that convention allowed the more moderate Republicans in general, the, the Virginia Republicans are more moderate than Georgia Republicans. And then they chose a, a very, very uh, a palatable Republican business leader um, as a candidate, where it's very unlikely that Georgia Republicans would ever host a convention choice of their candidate. And even if they did in Georgia, it would probably be more of a Trumplican type candidate that comes out of our convention based on the type of leadership we have in the Georgia GOP chairmanship right now that doesn't really put a thumb on Trump, whereas the Virginians being more moderate, where they did a convention based on the pandemic, they chose basically their candidate out of a bunch of people, and they chose it with awareness. They needed someone who was not too Trumpy. Um, Maria, both Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein wrote about the elections of Tuesday at, in the, today's paper. Maria, uh, Patricia's, the headline of her piece is, The Democrats' Very Bad Week. Uh, uh, and she goes on about what happened in Virginia and in local races. Greg Bluestein, the lead of his piece today is, Governor Brian Kemp kicked off the morning after Glenn Youngkin's uh, uh, upset victory by channeling the same culture war fights that propelled the Virginia Republicans' win. He declared federal vaccine mandates, quote, an outrageous big government power grab and kept his focus on President Joe Biden's sagging approval ratings. So even though President, uh, the former president is going to continue to attack Brian Kemp, Brian Kemp can't afford to uh, distance himself too much from the philosophy of Donald Trump. Yeah, it seems like GOP politics in the state of Georgia is a is almost a game of musical chairs. You don't want to, you know, whether you're going to be with with Trump or not Trump, or whether Trump's going to be with you, more importantly, or not. Um, I think it it's been fairly complicated to be a, a Republican in Georgia, especially a moderate Republican. But I would say back to the redistricting and reapportionment uh, conversation. Uh, Georgia is a almost straight down a 50-50 state at this point, and you would never see that if you were to look at our legislative seats or even our congressional seats. And the problem with re- a partisan-based or very political party-based reapportion system is that you don't have an elected leadership that reflects um, the population that we have. So calm naive, um, but I would love for us to go to a point where we have more of a citizens-based, um, a neutral, nonpartisan kind of reapportionment uh, system or redistricting system that better reflects the overall population of the state. Bill, can I follow Patricia? up on something Maria oh, just Yeah, go said ahead, Michael. And what, go what ahead. Uh, Mr. Smith just spoke to. Democrats, though, must recognize that without moderate, independent voters, we cannot win. And so hard left will not result in general election victories. Uh, that's the takeaway, I think, from Virginia. That's the problem, the, the takeaway from New Jersey. And we have to make sure that we have a base plus strategy. Obviously, turn out the base, but the base in and of itself is not enough to net victory in general elections in Georgia or just about any other state. Uh, yes, I will follow on to that by saying as as good of a week it has been for Republicans generally. I spoke with a Republican campaign operative who said he never underestimates uh, the Georgia Republicans' ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And that was a part of a conversation about the possible challenge to Brian Kemp um, from David Perdue and something that seemed so far-fetched so far-fetched a couple months ago, um, still to me seems uh, less than 50-50, um, but it's something that he is taking a hard look at. 
and even even discussing it, even letting it be out there is such an affront to Governor Kemp um, and is really damaging, I think, to him, even if it doesn't happen to have this sort of dangling out there that Brian Kemp is not enough for Republican voters because of his feud with Donald Trump. Um, and we know Donald Trump is going to be in this state in a way he was not in Virginia. Um, that will continue to play to to uh, challenge Republicans through 2022. Uh, Patricia, you in the Jolt today uh, quote from the Greg Bluestein article uh, about how how Republicans here in Georgia are responding to the Virginia victory. Um, And and let me read you one part of that and and ask you to respond. Conservative activists buoyed by the GOP resurgence in Virginia are pushing Brian Kemp and others, Republicans, to take up more aggressive measures in next year's legislative session, such as bans on obscenity in school libraries, barring transgender women from participating in female school sports. Um, How difficult is it going to be for particularly Brian Kemp? Let's focus just on the governor's race. How difficult is it going to be for him to decide that he needs to go along with those things? Or is it is it really a, a fork in the road for him? Well, you know, I think he is very conservative. I don't know that it would yeah. be hard for him to go along with those yeah. things. Because he signed, I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, one of the nation's most restrictive abortion bills, um, second only to Texas. Um, he has signed uh, and looked for uh, gun legislation to loosen gun restrictions. Um, he is conservative. And so I think anything that comes through the legislature um, that uh, gives him a chance to demonstrate that, uh, even if it seems like a bridge too far um, for some uh, moderate Republicans, uh, eventually it will be a choice between the Republican and whoever the Democrats put up. And we believe it will be Stacey Abrams. Um, he's got to get through his primary first, and he's got to hold off a primary challenge. So he's got one job in this legislature, and it's to make sure he's around uh, for a general election um, come the summer. Leo? Yeah, there are some parallels between Youngkin's platform and uh, Governor Kemp's leadership. I mean, uh, Youngkin said he wanted to increase teacher pay. Um, obviously, uh, Kemp won his gov- governorship with that as a campaign promise, and he's followed through on that. Um, and, and, and encouraging school choice, Youngkin made that part of his platform. Big deal. Um, the cultural issues are not just political rhetoric in this case. Those cultural issues are very real to the voters of Georgia, just as they were in Virginia. So those are very, very real things. Concern about inflation and, and being able to do things locally on consumables and taxation. Uh, those are things that Kemp talks about, too. So, you know, I, I think that Kemp is in a very strong position, um, uh, uh, providing we can avoid uh, a Purdue um, kind of entry. <laughs> I've got to get to the final break of the show, but but Michael, as the Democrat on this panel, I do need to ask you one quick question. We we, we as Patricia said, everybody's expecting Stacey Abrams will declare she's going to be the gubernatorial candidate or run for the uh, governorship next year. Um, but is there pressure on her now to get in this thing sooner rather than later, given what uh, uh, Republicans were able to do on Tuesday? Does she now have to make her declaration and get this campaign going? I'm not certain that she does, but one the cautionary tale from Tuesday is uh, we should expect the unexpected. Uh, how many people expected Yonkin to beat Terry McAuliffe up until the last few weeks? How many people expected Andre Dickens to surpass Kasim Reed into the uh, runoff? <laughs> COVID, this environment, has fundamentally shifted the landscape on multiple platforms. And one of the things I say to my managers and leaders in the care, COVID is a novel virus, which means it's new. And the big mistake we can make is that we rely on our experience to inform our decision making. This is a totally shifting environment. If Purdue gets in, if, if Leo, that's a very different uh, uh, reality. And so we really don't know what's going to happen. We do know there's going to be exciting and that it will be an amazing, and it is an amazing moment in our history. So we just have to put on the seatbelt and put your safety helmet on and just enjoy the ride. All right, Maria, you got a last quick comment before the break? Well, it's a question. I'm going to put on a reporter hat. 
If Stacy doesn't run, Michael, will you run? <laughs> well, it's, I'm always huh? interested. I'm all, <laughs> listen. Hope springs eternal in every political heart, right? And uh, but we'll see what what the future brings. Uh, I believe Maria. That, <laughs> hmm? Go ahead, Bill, Michael. Bill, please he keep and I talking. Understand that he never asks me direct questions when I'm on his show, Maria. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously but, you didn't but, read the ground rules, Bill. You didn't share the ground rules with Maria before we got us on today, obviously, right? Michael I Thurman, I have, I have to say that I had the same question in my head while we were talking about this subject that Maria asked you about, and. Um, I didn't realize we had ground rules like that, uh, Michael. You are a fake. You're oh, elected you official. We're journalists. We but no, well, we can see. I mean, we got to give Stacey has earned the right to 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 challenge Brian Kemp. She ran a great race four years ago. There were questions about the administration of the election, and uh, she has a right to make a decision and to challenge him. And I'm going to respect that. And, uh, you know, Thank one of the things Mike. they teach you in first year law school, never answer a hypothetical question. <laughs> right. Mike Thurman, <laughs> thank you very much for, for that. All right. Let's get to the final break. When we come back, Maria Supporta was in my hometown of Chicago, as she pointed out, on these link trip, which is a very important trip for leaders in the metro Atlanta area. I want to ask her about what they learned about Chicago that they think could be applicable here in not just Atlanta, but Savannah, um, uh, Macon, and other major cities in Georgia. But first, let's get to our final break. Every year, some elected officials, corporate leaders, uh, some executives in nonprofit organizations, and a few journalists uh, go on a trip to another American city where they kind of spend a couple days looking at the best practices for how those cities are dealing with problems that are, are fared, uh, shared and are, are common problems among various cities. Uh, this year, it was the Link trip, and Maria Saporta is a presence on that trip every year. Uh, Maria, just we're, we've got very little time, but what did you learn on the trip to Chicago about where what they're doing right that could be exported to uh, Atlanta and other major cities of Georgia? Well, race and the race gap, equity gap were the big centerpieces of this uh, trip. And I think that there is a really unified effort from their community foundation, uh, headed up by Helene Gale, who used to run CARE, mm -hmm. and various other nonprofits who have made this uh, really uh, first and foremost, and they're collaborating with all sorts of nonprofits and business leaders, and I think that that was a, a real lesson that, that we learned. Um, Shirley Franklin, former Mayor Shirley Franklin, was on that and uh, on the trip. And the last time Link went to Chicago, it was in her first administration. So this trip provided a great historical comparison of what we have done and, more importantly, what we haven't done in those subsequent 19 years. Uh, transit stood out uh, very big. Um, I wanted to just go back to the Michael Thurman. I'm sorry if I didn't know the rules, Michael, but, um, <laughs> but you once told me you once told me that the only uh, cure of getting um, politics out of one's veins is embalming fluid. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'll stop there. So thank you, Michael. Let me, Michael. Well, Michael, you're very much still in politics as CEO of DeKalb County, obviously. Um, but let me ask you, Michael, about, see, okay, I grew up in Chicago. It's interesting to hear Maria talk about efforts they're making on progress in race relations because Chicago has always been considered one of the most segregated cities in the United <laughs> States. And I will tell you that Andy Young used to give me a very hard time about coming from Chicago because Andy has said on any number of occasions that the most frightened he and Dr. King and other the other leaders of that movement were, were when they, not in the South, it was when they took their crusade, their campaign, to the west side of Chicago, Michael. Mm. So if Chicago's making progress on race relations, we can all learn a lot from that. 
Oh, absolutely. And we're at a moment in time where we, we, we need business, political leaders, individuals to really move away from the tribalism that defined our politics over the last few years and really embrace a spirit of unity. Look what, the, you know, use the praise as an example. Karen Teagarden wrote a column, a story yesterday that I love. The Braves, and, and, uh, you know, their victory, their ability to rise from mediocrity at midseason to win the world championship, and you got people of all colors and races on the team pulling for the team. Uh, you got the, 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 the image of Hank Aaron uh, looming over this, his legacy. Uh, this is a moment of, should be a moment of unity and opportunity for Metro Atlanta and for the state. And we need to take advantage of it. We need to build on what they've really been able to demonstrate as to how one becomes successful. Um, Patricia? Well, I'm uh, so excited as a lifelong Braves fan. My dad used to take us when they would literally <laughs> give away the seats behind the dugout in the first row because nobody wanted to go. Um, so it is thrilling. And I have to say that message of unity sounds like a great statewide message. <laughs> I, I, uh, <laughs> oh, Michael! Well, heck, I got to go ahead that. and announce before I get all this, this this show today, right? I got Patricia Murphy and Maria before who says no and be a Niger all in this world. <laughs> <laughs> it's a murderous row. Since we're talking baseball, this is a murderous row here. I Leo Smith, quick, quick comment from you before we're coming to the end. No, I, you know, as, as, a, as a conservative and a Republican, I'm actually a, a little shocked and very intrigued by this comparison to Chicago, whereas I see, you know, I mean, my son, 14 years old, used to be a Chicago fan, but he's absolutely a fan of the Atlanta Braves, the World Series champion. And I see a remigration from Chicago, a black elite, back to Atlanta. So well, I, and that, I, I think we're and that exactly we're is happening. That is exactly what is happening, is reverse migration, and that's a fascinating part of all this, too. Uh, we're completely out of time. Maria Supporta, Leo Smith, Michael Thurman, Patricia Murphy, <laughs> thank you for a surprising and fascinating conversation today. And I just want to, as we leave you for the weekend, I want to echo what uh, you've all already said. What a wonderful moment in the history of this state that despite our differences, despite the darkness of our politics, that today people are going to come together and celebrate something joyous and fun and positive, the world champion Atlanta Braves. If only we could take that same spirit forward, we would be better off for it. That's it for us for today. We're back on Monday. Have a great weekend. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask when you're around a lot of people indoors. Uh, get the flu shot if you haven't had it yet. And if you're eligible, it's time to get a booster shot as well. Take care, everybody.